You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing trends and new technologies in dental implantology. Our guest today is Dr. Joel Henriot, a periodontist and diplomat of the American Board of Periodontology. Dr. Henriot practices in Pasadena and San Diego, California, and speaks around the country on implantology, 3D diagnostics, bone and soft tissue grafting, perioprostodontic teamwork, and advanced periodontal therapy. He has done several excellent CE webinars on VivaLearning.com on topics such as grafting, suturing, basics of implant placement, and efficiency in implantology. So we're really excited to have Dr. Henriot with us. And Dr. Henriot, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Oh, thanks so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to have some time to talk with you, Phil. Yeah, so we've worked together in the past a lot on stuff. And again, we were very excited that you agreed to do this show. And I love the title you made up, Trends from the Trenches, A Periodontist Perspective on Dental Implants. Tell us what's new and exciting right now in dental implantology. Dental implants have affected everything we do in dentistry because it gives us such a reliable way to replace lost teeth or, or failing teeth. And as all private industries do, there's been so much constant innovation that's uh, made implants more predictable over the, the last 40 years. And I would say the big revolutions of the last 10 years have been the move to 3D imaging to help us planning our cases. And so I think it's indisputable at this point that 3D imaging is necessary to be able to plan and place implants accurately. And uh, that goes along with the ability to not only radiographically 3D image, but now scanning technology and optical scanning allows us to plan cases uh, really from the crown down in the computer before we even place the implant. And so that goes a long way in terms of the diagnostics. And then if we look at the actual implants, They've slowly evolved, but if you look at implant designs today, I feel like they've converged on some similar principles in the actual thread design, the top of the implant where it interfaces with the the bone and the abutment interface. Uh, Most implants are looking fairly similar, and uh, it's nice to learn what works in your hands, and there are so many good options out there in terms of – of which implant company that you can rely on. What you said about the imaging is huge. That's just been a great catalyst towards dentists doing more and more implants just because they have the confidence with that 3D imaging. I think if you look at how we did implants even 10 years ago, where it was more common to open up a flap, kind of measure how much bone you had, And the ability to see what is there before you go in is really democratized implant protocols and placement to where you don't have to be like a jazz musician and and improvise as soon as you open a flap. You know exactly what you're getting into, and you can certainly even make a guide that puts the implant right where you saw it in the computer before you, you know, when you sit down to do the case. That's interesting. You mentioned jazz musician. My wife just went to a jazz band uh, rehearsal tonight, so uh, very appropriate, very appropriate, Joel. So absolutely. Yeah. So technology is changing. How does that changing technology change the approach to implant cases? Yeah, I'll I'll give one example. Um, Each implant company has drills that come with their implant system and they're marked with the lines for the depth and they have, you know, they'll step up from small diameter to large diameter. And I'd always taken that for granted that, you know, the drills were the drills. Well, a few years ago, a 
company started selling drills that were kind of universal for various implant systems with built on a principle of being able to make the bone more dense as you drill, depending on whether you're in reverse or forward. And the number of lands or kind of cutting blades was increased from the more standard three on most implant systems to six. And the ability to feel the bone after having drilled, you know, thousands of holes for implants, switching to this this other drill system just totally gave me a new uh, feel in my fingers as I'm drilling the osteotomy for implant. And, uh, you know, those are called Versa Versa burrs. And that, it, you know, I, I can say that I've hardly used uh, kind of the implant specific implant company specific drills since I've mostly relied on this other third party system. And I didn't think that I'd be seeing innovation in the actual drilling of the implant hole. But lo and behold, that's been one of the main changes in our practice in the last, uh, I guess it's been three and a half years now that we've been using those. So that's a wonderful thing with kind of the competitive spirit within industry. There's lots of things that are being tried and, and the cream kind of rises to the top and you see, you see things uh, shifting. Most, a lot of my colleagues have, have sort of independently found that company and used them, and everybody kind of says the same thing. So you kind of see, when you talk about trends from the trenches, things that work end up being adopted and used. So those drills are uh, designed to fit many different types of implant systems, and, and they, they'll fit into your typical handpiece that you use for implant surgery? That's correct. They kind of leverage to different systems, and I think they work better with some than others, but uh, they, they certainly work very well with, with Zimmer, with BioHorizons, with Strauman, which are some of the major systems that we use in our practice. Mm-hmm. Along those same lines, I was thinking about what affects all of us in, in dentistry today. I think uh, in restorative dentistry, moving from typical handpieces to electric handpieces, that's been another thing that it's just something we use all day, and we certainly enjoy our electric handpiece. We have one made by NSK. It's a Z95L. And that electric handpiece, we've been using that for, I guess, six, seven years at this point. And I've cut a lot of teeth in half with that. And they, I just love having high torque, low sound. It's <laughs> That's another kind of workhorse in our practice. Yeah. So in the electric handpiece is becoming more popular not only with periodontists, with uh, obviously the surgical side of the implant cases, but just even in restorative dentistry. The, 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 Ab- absolutely. Yeah, cutting I mean, if you crown value props. your ears, mm-hmm. there's such a difference in an electric handpiece sound to turbines, which they have that high-pitched sound, and and uh, I think they affect hearing more than the electric handpieces. So that is a very compelling reason why adoption uh, is going that way. But probably more importantly, just the quality of the cut mm-hmm. and the torque and the right. smooth cut, it, it makes a big difference, and especially in this world of zirconia, where cutting through and removing these really hard ceramic materials uh, beg for something that can stand up to those harder materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and on the restorative side, just when you're doing crown or bridge, uh, preparing your margins with the electric handpiece, you don't have to you know, feather it like you would with an air-driven. It's just literally you have much more control. Uh, and you get you get I think better finished margins of your crown preps. Um, uh, I, I agree. Yeah, thanks for that recommendation. I know NSK is a big player in in the electric handpiece market, and they have air driven handpieces as well. But um, 
it's nice to hear what what guys in the trenches are using. How does a dentist decide on which implant system to pick for their practice? That's a great question. You know, like like we talked about, there's really high success rate with majority of these of the popular brands, I guess you could say. So it really comes down to what you've been trained on. And as someone learns implantology, it's really important that you look at it as a discipline. It's a whole field unto itself. So you have to sort of find who you're going to follow. And uh, all the major companies have some good continuums that they can train you in. There's some uh, good continuums like the maxi course or through most of the dental schools, they'll have something that plugs you into a mentored system where you can ask questions and present cases. Uh, implant implantology is really a team sport. And so you need to, to learn it in that type of uh, mentored environment. Of course, residency is a convenient place to, to do that because you can make mistakes and have kind of low consequences. But for most guys are out in practice. If you're going to pick up a, a skill like this, you can do it. It just takes time, takes choosing uh, cases correctly. And part of that is, is lining up with an implant company that is one of the main implant companies that has a big presence, that has local reps that can be hands-on with you. Uh, and so it, it kind of varies by region, but I know in our area uh, near Los Angeles, we have we have a, a plethora of, of companies and we have to strategically choose those that have been in the market for a long time and that we know are going to be around to support us because that's uh, kind of the dark side of implantology is that now that we're into 30 years of experience, we're having to revise cases and we do run into it. We've had to order parts from companies from Israel, France, Germany, Germany, Russia, and so the global nature of the world we live in, you have to beg the, you have to ask yourself the question, who's going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years to help me restore a case over again if something loosens or needs to be redone? And so that's where I feel more comfortable with the bigger players that I know are going to be around. They're not going to come and go and I can get legacy parts uh, down the road. Yeah, that's a great point that you just made. Um because I know implant companies are competitive and pricing is, is, is a factor to some practices, as, as it should be. Uh, but being around to help you maintain the health of those implants long term is, is super important. But it's like anything else. I mean, you want to make sure the manufacturer has a track record of good service. Uh, very, very helpful information there. So with all your implant experience, Dr. Henry, who should be placing the implants surgically? What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, great question. Of course, that's kind of a politically loaded uh, <laughs> idea. When I when I hear the word implantologist, to me, it's whoever is qualified to place and you know restore an implant. And so that is going to run the gamut from oral surgeons, periodontists, surgically oriented general dentists that get training and experience. And even uh, some of the endodontic post-grad programs are introducing implantology into their departments. And so really implantology is a field touches every discipline except for maybe pedo. But uh, the most important thing is each clinician needs to be needs to qualify themselves through training and the inevitable experience and learning curve that goes with that. 
And so I think the territoriality of who's placing implants is really a story from 10 years ago because the protocols for implantology have democratized and you don't have to have a really, you know, years long training base to be able to do an implant. Now everybody has their own unique abilities. And so that's always the, an important part of, of anybody's training is doing the gut check and looking at yourself honestly and saying to yourself, am I up for this case or that case? And if you're not, have a safety net that can help you with the cases that uh, maybe you're not ready for. You do think, though, if it's a GP who's doing the implant, they would need how much training and what do you recommend for that? Yeah, that's a great thing. It brings to mind a, a part of a, a study that was mentioned in the Carl Misch textbook, which was really one of the first textbooks that kind of A to Z implantology. And they had a study in there that they compared the first 50 implants to the second 50 implants that somebody places. And the failure rate in the first 50 implants is twice what it is in the second 50. So you have to ask yourself, okay, who's gonna be, where am I gonna, how am I gonna accomplish my learning curve with the least collateral damage to those around me? Right. And and so, yeah, to get those first 100 implants in, you don't wanna do it in a vacuum. You wanna be connected to people around that can help you. And it might be, a, a local surgeon that uh, is willing to kind of train. But I think for most people, since l- learning a field like implantology really takes time and spans spans time and space, you really need to have uh, more of a continuum learning. I think going to a one-week course, even where there's a hands-on component, is not enough to really train you all the way. It, it gets you started. Uh, and it's important to plug into some of the, the organizations like the uh, ICOI, International Congress of Oral Implantologists, or the American Board of Oral Implantology, the ABOI, or some of the other organizations that can be, they're designed to help us plug into a mentored learning environment and to start to understand what has been the history and learning curve of the profession. Every dentist or or implant doctor does not need to repeat the mistakes the profession has learned through hard experience over the last 30 years. You can pick up and and start with where the profession is today if you're willing to learn in a in an environment where you have collegial relationships and uh, and appreciate and learn the history and, and literature. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's implant study clubs. I'm sure. And Absolutely. At the local level, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, exactly. So you need to plug into somebody nationally or internationally as well as something locally. And uh, there's certainly so many good implant courses out there that could be taken. You know, you get flyers in the mail uh, on a weekly basis for learning and continuing your implanting education. Carl Misch uh, information that you just mentioned where the first 50 versus the second 50, there's some obvious differences. What are the major problems that occur in the first 50 for a GP, let's say. And then also the second part of the question is, I'd like to know some of the complications that you see in your practice in implantology. Oh, great question. Yeah. So I'd be speculating, but I think when we start doing anything new, we're timid. And so I see some of the mistakes I see in, in uh, people's kind of initial implants might be not understanding the anatomy. And so being gun shy. So implants not being placed all the way into the bone or not being at the right angle. I mean, those first few implants that you drill for, you are thinking in 
three axes. You have your depth, you have your buccal lingual, and your mesiodistal angulation. And all three of those are going through your mind at the same time. And it happens to everybody. Sometimes your implant is not centered where you thought it was going to end up. So that positioning errors uh, are, are a major uh, error that can be made. And definitely, um, as you're trying to put the implant right in the middle of the goalposts, there's a lot to think about. And is, in your first cases, you have more going through your head than, you know, later on case when you're experienced. Right. So I'd, I'd say positioning is a major factor as well as, uh, as well as having good bone quality. And so as you get into implantology, very quickly you realize that in order to place a perfect implant, you need to be able to regenerate good bone. And so it drags you into a, the whole field of building and maintaining bone around teeth that you have to remove. And so that's a whole topic in and of itself, but uh, it, it's why uh, if you move into implants, it's not just placing implants, it's really about preparing the site, placing the implant, and then maintaining the health around an implant. Right. Did that answer the first question well enough? Yeah, that was a, that was an excellent answer uh, to the question. I mean, that's a question. long discussion to right. have. <laughs> uh, you asked, what problems are we seeing around implants? Well, our practice uh, being a, a private periodontal practice, we are kind of the safety net and we see a lot of uh, a lot of implant problems. I would say the number one cause of implant implantitis or implant complications is cement. And so every great dentist will eventually have cement escape out of reach. And you may not know it's there the day you restore an implant and it will show up month, days, months or even years down the road with bone loss and inflammation. And so that's a, a major thing that we seem to see on a regular basis with implants that are, have had early bone loss and uh, and or, you know, problems with the tissue in terms of inflammation. That's usually our first thing as we look at, is there retained cement? Uh, that's kind of number one. That's why whenever possible, we really like having screw retained restorations. They uh, they eliminate that whole side of, of cement retention. You've got implants that uh, that don't have enough soft tissue around them. So very clearly in the literature, we see this connection between mucosal margins around implants and worse bone maintenance around those same implants. And so um, if you think think back, think in your practice to implant cases that you've seen, you've probably had a case of maxillary implants where you go up and you look in the vestibule and there's just not a lot of keratinized tissue or no keratinized tissue, those are typically the implants that uh, are going to have some bone loss and may even have, you know, a breakdown of that collar of tissue that should be sealing up the mouth from the, the you know, the implant neck. And, and that's, uh, that's a problem too. So you really need to have healthy, wide enough keratinized tissue around a long-term healthy implant and I think we can go back to our classic periodontal literature from the mid-70s with Maynard and Wilson, where they proposed in an opinion paper that three millimeters was kind of the minimum cuff of attached keratinized tissue for healthy restorative margins. I think that applies to, to implants as well, although I would like to see more than three whenever possible, which means either it needs to be favored in the process of placing and uh, and or uncovering the implant or adding 
keratinized or connective tissue around implants where there's not enough. You answered that question about the complications for the GP on his first 50 cases. And, and again, you, you referred to it's in some part due to a lack of confidence, uh, which I guess you develop in the second 50, which certainly gives you some better success rate. And then you talked about some of the stuff in your practice that goes on that uh, you have to be aware of to minimize complications. And let's talk about peri-implant problems a little bit. What's the best way to address the tide of peri-implant problems? This is uh, top of mind for everybody involved in implantology right now. And really, we should be, for the most part, using implant designs that medialize the abutment. So pull the, so it, it, something that preserves the biologic width. That in and of itself is going to be bone preserving. Unfortunately, many of our implants through, whether it's hygiene not being what it should have been, um, or just periodontitis not being fully treated in the mouth where implants are present. We have many implants with bone loss around the neck of the implant, and now how do we maintain those? So they're just like gingivitis and periodontitis, there's, there are kind of corollary diagnoses around implants. Paramucositis, which is the equivalent of gingivitis around an implant, where there may be inflammation, but hopefully not bone loss yet, or paraimplantitis, which is where that inflammation has progressed to bone loss. And it goes back to kind of our periodontitis treatment principles where we need to first focus on hygiene. How are they cleaning the implants? Are they cleaning the implants? Is there calculus and plaque as an etiology on the surface of the crown abutment or even the implant itself? If those are present, has to be cleaned. The great debate that's been raging is what do you do to the surface of an implant that has lost bone? Do you put on acid? Do you put on EDTA? Do you use saline? Do you use uh, different detergents? And uh, there, the consensus seems to be that uh, nothing works perfectly, almost impossible to completely disinfect, I mean, the topography of an implant under under uh, SEM, it's, you know, it's like the it's like mountainous and, and cavernous and, and lots of places for bacteria to hide. So it's a combination of really thorough um, debridement. Um, there are some promising things like error profi type of uh, things to help almost sandblast or laser use with an ER YAG. Uh, thorough debridement and attempt to disinfect followed by uh, even some bone grafting of infrabony defects seems to be effective. And then maintaining, just like we would a compromised tooth, close recalls, excellent plaque control, all of these measures uh, on our patients. But it represents an ongoing challenge that won't go away and will continue. Hopefully our implants going forward recognize the history and the learning that, that we have now that we need to you know, have a, a strong supercrestal attachment around the implant. And uh, and hopefully we're not creating a lot of periimplantitis on our newer implants and we're just maintaining uh, the older implants that, that are existing in the world. Mm-hmm. How, how much uh, of a role do lasers play in your practice? We use a la- I use lasers on a daily basis. I'm probably stepping on my laser pedal a couple hours a day, honestly, but it's mm. mainly in the context of periodontal treatment uh, with uh, the, the LANAP protocol. 
so we use that day in day out. We've used it for eight years, and uh, it's a foundation of our of our practice. We I have a pretty balanced periodontal practice. I'd say that 40 to 50 percent of my time is spent doing periodontal treatment, and then uh, another 30 percent or so is spent doing implant treatment, and 30 percent is spent doing a soft tissue type of uh, soft tissue grafting, etc. Yeah, that's so we we spend a lot of time, and that's the main place that laser affects me, uh, is using an NDAG wavelength to treat periodontitis. Yeah, that's that's been proven to be very successful in a lot of practices. A lot of literature has been written about that. Um, that was great information about peri-implant problems. Uh, you did mention a little bit about the issue of cement, which we know is a, an issue with implant cases. So what is your perspective on screw-retained or cement-retained implant crowns? When we plan our cases, our guide is always going to favor a centered kind of central fossa type of placement so that our restorative doctors can do a screw-retained restoration. The place we run into trouble is sometimes the maxillary anterior where the projection of the bone makes it difficult to have screw-retained restoration, but that is our that's our goal is to place it so that a screw can screw access hole can come out behind the incised ledge or down the central fossa. And there are times uh, where the, it still may be necessary to do a cement retained restoration. Uh, there's been some great innovation with an angled screw uh, access channel through Nobel or Strauman. And I'm sure uh, there'll be some, you know, that'll be a trend throughout the industry where you can have a, a you can have a, a driver that can engage the screw from an angle and even though the the direct center of the implant may be coming out facial, we can still engage a screw within the abutment and still have a screw-retained restoration that, that emerges uh, palatal to the incisal edge. As we're getting closer to the end of this podcast, which has been super informative, could you tell us a little bit about a setup? Like if a, a, a dentist was, was starting to do uh, the surgical part of implants and he wants to have an armamentarium that would get him going, um, can you talk about you know, from the drill you talked about to the just the the handpiece, the motor, that kind of thing. What what are some of the things that you recommend uh, that is a must-have for for a, a good start to a surgical aspect of implant placement? Yeah, great great question. So the startup for someone starting implants, uh, the basic armamentarium that you need, you need a great surgical kit. So you need instruments that are going to help you incise, raise a flap close the flap. You're going to need an implant motor, and that's going to run on a, a 20 to 1 handpiece, uh, different than, you know, a normal restorative handpiece. So you're going to have you're going to have a standalone implant motor unit that has a handpiece, um, and you've got to learn those settings, okay, because each manufacturer, whatever implant system you choose to use, is going to tell you a recommended drill speed. And so, like everything, we need to understand our instruments so you got to get to know your implant motor, and then you're going to choose an implant system, hopefully the same implant system that you've been trained with in a hands-on environment. Okay, so you need to kind of know what's the sequence. Uh, once you have all the equipment and the learning, next is to choose the right patient. And if I was doing my first implant in my life, I would want to choose, and I was right-handed, I want to, I'd want to choose a number 30 where I had 15 millimeters of bone from the crest of bone huh. down to the nerve 
or more, and I'd want to have a nice wide 10 millimeter ridge. So what I'm saying is you want to choose your patients carefully for your initial cases. So it's a slam dunk, easy case, Mm -hmm. and they're in your practices. It's just a matter of diagnosing through 3D radiology and picking and choosing the easy cases until you get through that learning curve. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great advice, Dr. Henry. That's super good advice. You did recommend some, you recommended uh, as far as the materials, a particular drill that was, what, what was the name of that? Was it called the Versa drill? As you move along and you've done some cases, the Versa drills, it's V-E-R-S-A-H. Of course, I have no uh, formal relationship with them. I just uh, use their product every day. Um, and uh, it, there is a learning curve with those. So that's that's definitely something that it can it can uh, be a, a great adjunct to your implant uh, placement and, and everything, but you need to kind of learn how those drills work. They're a little different than maybe what's in your implant kit. Right. So I would start with just whatever's recommended with your implant kit, um, and of course, I guess to follow once you've got your patient, realize that implant dentistry, like all great dentistry, is a team sport and. The whole team needs to understand it from the receptionist to the assistant sitting chairside with you, uh, helping you um, helping you do the case. Yeah, very good. Very good information, Dr. Henry. We appreciate having you on the show, and uh, we hope to see you on future podcasts soon. And, uh, again, if anybody wants to listen to some fantastic webinars, they're available on vivalearning.com. Uh, Dr. Henry, I talked about grafting, which he didn't really talk too much about today, but hopefully we can do a podcast on grafting down the road. And again, I mentioned earlier, suturing, efficiency in implantology, and the basics of implant placement. I think those webinars are sponsored by NSK, or some of them are, I believe, um, which is uh, we thank NSK for sponsoring this podcast. And uh, we thank Dr. Henriot for coming on to do this. Uh, He uses these materials, as he says, on a daily basis or whenever he uses them because he enjoys them and does well with them, not because he has any connection to these companies. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Henry, for joining us. I hope to have you on the show soon. Thank you so much, Phil. There's so much to talk about, and you know, it's an exciting field in dentistry, and I uh, encourage everybody to keep learning, keep growing. Thank you so much.